Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in July of 2017. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by Dr. Gordon Lafer. Dr. Lafer earned his bachelor's in economics from Swarthmore College and his PhD from Yale in political science. He has taught at numerous colleges around the world, including the University of Oregon, Tel Aviv University, UMass Amherst, and Hebrew University. His work and teachings have focused on industrial policy and labor law. From 2009 to 2010, he served as Senior Policy Advisor to the United States Congress as part of its Committee on Education and Labor. Dr. Lafer is the author of The Job Training Charade and The 1%, both examinations of the failure of modern economic and labor policy in America. He is currently a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., where he studies topics such as unions and labor law. Together, we discuss the decline of union membership, why the decline of big labor led to increased influence from nonprofits, and how a better planned tax system can better serve working class Americans. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Professor Lafer, welcome to Smart Talk. Thank you. It's good to be here. In the uh, above quoted article in The Nation, you called for nonviolent action that directly challenges the economic elite. Well, activists have organized against foreclosures and against student debt, but with modest results in terms of regulatory changes or beneficial legislation. Uh, what actions do you propose that have a chance to achieve real change? Well, you know, it's hard to say here's the four-point plan to, to victory because I don't think anybody has that. Um, when I wrote those words was around the time of Occupy Wall Street when there were large groups of people in a, at least a few different cities in the country who were actively you know, using their bodies to prevent foreclosure of people's homes and also organizing against uh, usurious student debt. So I, I guess I think, you know, the main point of that article, which still seems to me holds true, is the difficulty of trying to solve those problems through the legislative process because the economic interests have so much power over the legislative process. My book is primarily about the states, but it's largely true in Washington, D.C. as well. And I thought that that moment of, of uh, Occupy Wall Street when people were saying, okay, we're not going to, this is not going to become a policy memo to members of Congress asking them to do something. We're going to act directly on this by trying to tackle these things head on between ourselves, the activists, and the real economic power was smart and was promising. Obviously, it mostly fizzled out. So it's a little hard to say, you know, what do you do now when there's not uh, that kind of groundswell of momentum that there was in 2011? Let me ask you a, sort of a follow-up question on that. What do you think of the Next Systems Project? And I don't know. You know what that is? No. Oh, it, uh, um, well, there's, there's a whole uh, group of, of social science and intellectuals, Gar Alperovitz is involved. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you go on the internet to their, their website, they've been, uh, they've been undertaking a whole range of, of teach-ins to try to discuss all of our various you know, social ills and problems, come up with best practice solutions. So it might be something that might interest you to take a look at to see what they've been up to. Let me go on to 
to a next uh, question. Your new book uh, describes how corporations have captured the legislative and regulatory agendas in each of the states, uh, certainly emboldened by the 2010 Citizens United decision. Question I have, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion, would it help if legislation could somehow be passed that gave employees and other stakeholders seats on corporate boards? What do you think? Uh, depends how many seats there were. I mean, there, there are many, you know, if you look at um, United Airlines, for instance, is a famous case where, you know, at some point in the past when United was in danger of bankruptcy, they actually had what they called an employee takeover, which ended up meaning that employees owned the majority of the stock, right. but did not have a majority of the votes on the board of directors. And then you saw, and then you saw the employees in all kinds of fights with the company that they supposedly owned about wages, about working conditions, about rest between shifts, all kinds of things. So, you know, there are places to say employees will have one or two seats on boards. I think there are too many places where that has not worked, especially in America. People often point to Germany or, you know, some of the other countries in Western Europe where there's a whole different tradition and there is often, you know, labor representation on boards of directors, but it's more meaningful because it comes in the context of a much different relationship between labor management and the government. And, but in the absence of a system like that, in the actual system that we live in, to say have one or two employees on the board, I think turns out to not be that meaningful most of the time. Right. I agree with you. I think uh, I've been a long supporter of forming of cooperative enterprise. And I think cooperatives introduce the, the highest level of industrial democracy or voter or worker participation. I, I, I assume you would agree with that. I would agree with that, yes. Let me ask you something else. Uh, you make the case for organizing around specific issues and for those on the left to join with Trump voters where possible to advance shared interests. And what I'd like to know from you is what are the main issues you identify that are shared by those disillusioned with our so-called pay-to-play political system? So, you know, we don't entirely know. There are some things that you do know um, where you can see a majority of both registered Republicans and Democrats on the same side of an issue. That's true about support for raising the minimum wage, significantly raising it. It's true about the idea that everybody should have a right to some minimum number of paid sick days from their employers. It's true about people wanting um, small classes for kids in school and trained teachers in those schools. It's true about wanting to roll back Citizens United. So you know, I just think that there are, you know, first of all, when we talk about Trump voters, there are almost 60 million people, about 60 million people, who voted for Donald Trump. And Obviously, that's not a monolithic group. Right. And there are people who voted for many different reasons among half, them. And half of us um, didn't vote at all. Well, and obviously, many people who didn't vote at all. Um, but when we look at that group, you know, there, are, there is a significant number of, of uh, lower-income people, of working people, who are, um, you know, it's hard to say how things like economic desperation and racism and other forms of anger um, come together. You know, when you're living in a time of long-term economic decline, which is true especially for the two-thirds of Americans who are in jobs that don't require college degrees, for whom real wages have been flat or declining for 40 years, that produces volatility, produces a lot of anger, a lot of anxiety, a lot of rage, and that can go in a lot of different directions. 
So I think that it's really important to look to people like that and to figure out where there are opportunities. And my guess is that those opportunities are not going to be around candidates and are not going to be around parties. But that there is, especially in places where people have the right to vote by referendum on a particular issue, I think there's reason to think that there is an uh, already fertile ground to organize in a more progressive direction on a number of issues. Well, your state of Oregon is one of the places in the country where INR are, have been successful. Uh, are there any, yes. any strong uh, initiatives and in referenda that are, that are now being considered in Oregon? Uh, we raised the minimum wage. We, ha we adopted a right to paid sick leave. Um, there are people looking at the possibility of uh, an initiative that would about fair scheduling. So, for instance, you couldn't be in a job where your boss says, we need you to be on call the whole week. Mm. We won't guarantee you any hours, but don't take a second job, like don't go anyplace with your kid, don't do anything. That those things should be either non-existent or very minimal. But, you know, even here, Oregon is a, a relatively cheap state because we're only three million people and the media market is not that expensive. But it's very common for the corporate lobbies to put in five, ten million dollars opposing anything. So it's a it's a serious battle even here to get something progressive passed. But we've seen, I mean, for instance, last fall, uh, Arizona voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton and by a much wider margin voted to raise the state minimum wage and establish a right to paid sick leave. So that's, you know, that's one of the hopeful signs to me. I'm going to put something to you for consideration that, that uh, would come out of my, my study of Henry George's analysis of how our economy works. And I've put this before some of my former colleagues at Fannie Mae and in the, in the housing sector. And that is that there's a potential uh, for a, a broad increase in the minimum wage to be capitalized into higher property prices and higher housing costs, particularly for low-income renters. And, and I've said to them, the key is that we need a program to increase the supply of affordable housing. If we increase the minimum wage, but fail to increase the supply of affordable housing, all we're going to do is make landlords richer, that, that they'll just wait till leases expire and increase the rents. How are you seeing any of those uh, outcomes happening in Oregon or other places that you've looked at? Um, yes and no. I guess I would, you know, I don't have your expertise in housing, but I, I would disagree with you if you really meant it to say, that all that is going to happen is enriching landlords. I think in places where minimum wage is significantly higher, it's made a significant improvement in people's lives. Now, I, I would say tendency. Hand, I, would, I would use the word tendency. It wouldn't be okay. an absolute. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not trying to okay. put words in your mouth. I'm saying I do think it has a makes a significant improvement in people's lives. Okay. But um, I know particularly, for instance, uh, I know of the hotel workers union in New York. This is one example, right? In the big cities now, um, there are investment banks and hedge funds investing in buying up apartments to put on Airbnb because it's extremely profitable. In some cases, those same hedge funds own the hotels, right? And so I know the Hotel Workers Union in New York has a campaign to go after those hedge funds about their investments in residential properties. To say a version of what you already said, you know, if you get a 3% wage increase in your union contract and your rent goes up by 15%, you didn't win. And even right. though people don't think of real estate and rent as something that a union would get involved in because it's not a it's not a contract with the employer, they said this is where we have to get involved. We have to get involved in 
fighting these hedge funds and in trying to regulate um, in trying to regulate Airbnb in particular, which has been such a magnet for high finance. Yeah, years ago, I, I, I met with representatives of the AFL-CIO to talk about affordable housing for union members. And I know recently, uh, just in the news, Google, I think, has, has now, in the Bay Area, uh, started some initiative to uh, pay, subsidize the construction of affordable housing for its workers. I don't know how extensive that's going to be, but I, in my view, more companies have to become involved uh, with, with employer housing, employee housing, uh, in order to really make this idea work of increasing minimum wages. Anyway, uh, thanks. Let me go on to the next question. Uh, in your view, has the economic uh, globalization that we've experienced reversed the post-Second World War expansion of social democracy or democratic socialism, whichever term you prefer, as a, as a societal objective? Uh, yes. Uh, not by itself, but it has definitely been a, a contributing factor because, the, you know, the, I think this is not a question of being pro-trade or anti-trade. I don't think anybody's talking about, oh, let's build walls around the country and, and you know, only deal with ourselves. The question is, what are the terms of trade? Right. And the terms of trade we have now effectively are a race to the bottom where it has made easy for capital to move to places where labor is not only the cheapest, but also the most politically repressed, which I think is why one of the reasons why places like China and Vietnam are, um, are attractive. Obviously, you know, in China, there are thousands of strikes a year, but there is a system to try to regulate uh, labor protests and to try to regulate the law that American corporations are very active in so that you know, when people say, well, we, you know, the United States and Britain, we also started off with terrible industrial conditions and we grew through trade. You know, I feel like, well, partly you don't necessarily want to make other countries go through what, what England was like in the 1840s. But also in places where there's not democracy, where people don't have the right to write a letter to the paper, to elect their own representatives, to change the laws, to strike, to protest, the process of people organizing and driving up wages over time is stunted. And I think that you know we have a, that is part of the problem of the the NAFTA WTO model of world trade is that it encourages driving down to the bottom and even more with the more recent you know really post NAFTA direction that trade has taken with investor state dispute uh, mechanisms where foreign investors are able to effectively take away a substantial part of the ability of voters to regulate their economy by making it prohibitively expensive. I think that's a that's one of the things that is significantly contributing to the downward decline since since the late 1970s. Well, how do we deal politically with the kind of rhetoric we hear from the Trump administration and from the president about you know, America first? And how do we how do we deal in the global economy when uh, so many other countries are looking elsewhere besides the United States for any kind of moral leadership now? Uh, you know, the, I think the United States still has a lot of clout in the global economy. You know, we're not the, the unrivaled leader anymore, but we're still a very large market that everybody wants to sell to. And I do think that there are some things, you know, when they talk about, um, uh, for instance, American content in infrastructure work, I think to the, which is the, the Buy American provisions, right, which is separate from the kind of consumer boycott of we don't want to buy anything made in another country. It's saying, 
Okay, right. when the government is building highways and bridges, unless it's prohibitively expensive, it should use American steel, it should use American-made bulldozers, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that that's good. So, and, you know, well, Trump, it, this is part of why Trump is tricky. Yeah, it's also the because, challenge that, that what is an American company? I mean, is, is GM an American company? Is Ford an American company? Or is Mercedes an American company if, if it's, you know, assembling automobiles in Virginia or, you know, Toyota is assembling uh, automobiles in Tennessee? It's, it's so difficult to really identify which companies are really, you know, U.S. US companies any longer. Right. So I think it has to, you know, when we talk about something like this, we have to go by where something is made and not by where right. the company is headquartered. Now, right. in things like automobiles, it can get very, very difficult even with a car to say where is it made. It's made in seven different places. With steel and some other things, it's easier. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a perfect thing. But I think, you know, when we talk mm -hmm. about the question of what's an American company, there's another side of it which is really critical, which is, um, you know, GM, the president of GM famously said, he didn't exactly say these words, but, you know, he always quoted as saying, what's good for GM is good for America in 1953. Right. So I don't know that that was true even in 1953, but it was closer to true then because GM employees were American and the people they relied on to buy their cars were Americans. Yeah. So now a majority of GM employees and two-thirds of the cars they sell are overseas. But politically, they're treated as an American company. So GM sells more cars in China than in the U.S. A Chinese company is barred from making contributions to American political campaigns. But a legally American company, even if a majority of its business and its interests are overseas, can give unlimited cash to American politics. So this is one of the unusual things about our period in terms of politics, is we have these companies that are the biggest players in American politics, but whose interests are increasingly divorced, not entirely divorced, but more more separate than ever from the fate of the people who live here, either as workers or as consumers. Your, your comments sort of lead to the next issue that, that I wanted to talk about, and it relates to, you know, the history of labor unions in the United States. Uh, it had a very strong, you know, relationship with, with uh, industry here during the Second World War because they were, the companies were able to pass on their costs you know, with a cost-plus relationship with the government. And unions grew stronger and stronger. I think there's been some criticism of unions during that period because uh, they really didn't see the future. And so to what extent do you think it was the fault of the unions themselves acting in, a way, in ways that were not consistent with preservation of their own position in, in the industrial economy? Uh, zero. I mean, it's a big world, right? So there's always, you know, there's corruption and incompetence every place. So I guess I shouldn't say zero, but you know, as you said, that um, the the most complete form of industrial democracy you could imagine is a cooperative, wow. which I agree with. I think the second most complete form of democracy is a union, and not to say it's perfect, right? But the people who have, you know, the the goal of the the economic goal of the union is to enable the workers to make a decent living and get a fair share of the profits while keeping the company financially viable. I think that nobody more than the people who work someplace have a bigger interest in keeping the company financially viable. I mean, usually if a company goes out of business, the people who own it may feel like they took a terrible hit, but generally 
their houses and their kids and their cars and everything is okay. The people who lost their jobs are really wiped out. Right. Now, sometimes you can misguess that. You know, when you're in negotiations and you're pushing for something and you don't know what is really on the other side, obviously people can make mistakes. But I think in general, uh, a labor union is a very uh, supple kind of tool. It's, not, it's kind of the opposite of a one-size-fits-all mandate, right? It's not saying everybody who's a tool and die maker is going to make this amount of money and have this health insurance. It's saying we're going to allow each group of workers in each place to negotiate with their employer and try to come to something that they think is fair and that keeps the company profitable enough. Obviously, people, you know, everybody wants more or less, and you can guess wrong, but I don't think that that's, um, despite the, you're right, there's a lot of criticism, there's a lot of, you know, ads, oh look, unions destroyed the auto business or the steel business. I don't think that's what the economic evidence actually shows. The, the real serious question is whether or not workers can rebuild their, rebuild unions and become, you know, another, a strong stool. If you remember what John Kenneth Galbraith said about, you know, the economy being, you know, three, three-legged stool, big business, big government, and big labor, and it all kind of worked harmoniously for quite a long time. But now labor is on the outs, seems to be replaced by big nonprofits. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I've had people asking me for a long time, so do you think there's still going to be unions in 20 years? And, you know, I would like to say that people will always find some way to rebel. Um, you know, if you look at polls, there's still tens of millions of Americans who say they wish they had a union at their workplace. But when, you know, in times of economic insecurity, it cuts both ways. It makes people want a union more because they want the security of that, and it makes them more scared to stick their neck out. Right. And right now, the, the ease of employers threatening to fire or actually firing people, for which there's very small penalties under law, has effectively scared most people from from trying to organize so it's hard to know you know I don't know and like I said you know I would like people say oh the people always find a way to rebel and I hope that that's true on the other hand there was 600 years of feudalism and there were some rebellions against feudalism but mostly everybody woke up in the morning and took it as normal so I, it's hard to say yeah, not very many peasant revolts actually were successful either that's right well you your research is focused on the states and States, even communities, today more than ever, I think, compete with one another for businesses by offering tax breaks and other subsidies and exemption from strict environmental protections. Is there a means of creating a level playing field uh, of increasing employment opportunities without sacrificing the public interest the way it's been done for the last 30 years or so? I mean, I think that way is by putting things into federal legislation is the best way. And that I think that part of the long trajectory of, of defederalism, starting with, uh, with President Reagan, has been to create that kind of competition between the states. Of course, states also get played. Um, you know, the companies that say, I think on the, the, big, the big economic development deals may in fact lure a company from one place to another. But the general statutory difference in tax rates or in labor laws or, or even environmental laws uh, has very little impact actually on company location decisions. And there's been a lot of research doing that. And even when you look at surveys of employers themselves, not the employer lobbying organizations, but actu the actual people who are making the location decisions, 
when they say, where am I going to locate, which is mostly a question for manufacturers, it's usually, where are my suppliers, where are my customers, how close am I to a port or a highway, um, sometimes the school system matters, and these other things are things that can be kind of extorted out of local governments under threat, but don't really make that big a difference in, in job decisions. Mm -hmm. But the fact that so many things have been broken down to the state level um, as a, that used to be federally decided is, is very hard to, uh, to counteract unless it's re-regulated at the federal level. Yeah, this, I mean, the, the analysis that Henry George provided uh, as long ago as the you know, late 19th century still, in my view, holds very, very well. And that is that if we just redesign our tax system so that capital investment is rewarded and you know, negative behaviors such as land speculation and hoarding of land and natural resources has a cost to it, an appropriate cost, then a lot of what the states are trying to do through all of these giveaways uh, will happen naturally. And, and as you say, companies will then locate where, where they need to locate based on their business needs. At the same time, what they'll then experience is a relatively low entry cost in terms of land acquisition, because the economics are that a high annual tax on land will result in lower land prices. More land will be brought you know, to the market and landowners will compete with one another uh, for, for business activity, as opposed to now, the other way around is, businesses have to try to find some affordable land somewhere. And too often we're seeing that result in sprawl, which has so many negative consequences that, that we're not yet facing as a society. So uh, I just pass that on as something to consider as you, as you look to some of these issues that Henry George has something you know, very positive to offer in terms of, of bringing people back toward the center of development where infrastructure exists. And, and we'll, if we can lower the land costs, we'll see a lot better of this kind of rebuilding of our cities without the you know, negative side effects. Yeah. Uh, in, in an interview you did in 2012, I'm sorry, did you want to comment on that? Well, my only comment is that, you know, the question of where companies locate primarily, not entirely, but above all is a question of manufacture. Mostly that's who's, those are the companies that are trying to decide, do I want to be here or there? Um, which is now, you know, even in the manu most manufacturing intensive states maybe is 18% of the, of the jobs or something like that. Not to say it's not important, but when we look at the service economy, which pretty much has to be where it is, you know, hospitals have to be where the sick people are and schools have to be where the kids are and stores have to be where the shoppers are. And that's what is the, especially healthcare is the single biggest growing set of jobs over the next decade. There, the challenge is not how do we get them to, you know, to a certain location, but how do we make jobs that could be decently paying jobs, but are not right into better paying jobs right and obviously there's some parts of the economy where the profit margins are too narrow they can't afford that but when you look at the parts of the you know increasingly the labor movement has looked at the parts of the um, service economy that are immobile and where there's enough profit for jobs to be decently paying and try to figure out how do we make them into decently paying jobs and that's a huge challenge in many places well one of the one of the long-standing challenges i had working at fannie mae uh, was to try to get some of our senior people to look at the land market as a real part of the problem 
And uh, it was toward the end of my tenure there when the company finally sent me out on the road to give talks on, on uh, how the land market related to the cost of housing. But unfortunately, in 2005, things really sort of hit the fan and uh, all of our activities that were anyway public policy oriented were, were curtailed so that the company could deal with the financial crisis it was in. Um, so these are, these are complex issues, no doubt. Uh, I just hope that more economists and people who are focusing on economic policy issues would begin to look more closely at the underlying dynamics of how land markets operate and how they affect the decision-making that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. um, in, in an interview you did in 2012 on Occupy TV, you stated change will not come just because things are bad for many people because the worsening conditions occur gradually. And I, as you said earlier, we sort of get used to it. Economists who study the operation of property markets and land markets particularly have identified that there's an average 18-year cycle. If they're right, and I think they are, we're destined for another devastating crash by 2026. I guess my question to you is, how bad will it need to get before the demand for systemic changes emerges in the general population? So um, I don't believe that there is some mechanism that makes people automatically rebel in a progressive direction when things get a certain amount bad. I know there's a lot of people who either think that or wish that that was true. And in our situation, um, you know, I think that Donald Trump essentially ran above all on the promise to create decently paying jobs for people without college degrees. Assuming that that does not become true in, num you know, in numbers big enough to matter, and that dawns on people who place their hope in him in three, four, five years, I don't know how long it takes, I think we're at an even more, we'll be at an even more dangerous time than this because it's possible that the only place left for him to go is to try to whip up even greater white nationalist frenzy to try to keep the base energized when he's not actually producing the economic change. So I guess I, I similarly, I mean, I've met, uh, I've met union members even who will say things like, uh, I hate banks, I hate insurance companies, I hate rich people, and I hate immigrants, and I hate people on welfare. Like there's a lot of hate to go around, and people are trying to push those people in one direction or another. So I, you know, even if you're right and there's a crash, um, you know, part of why I, I think it's so important to do the things we were talking about earlier about find issues that we can organize in common with some number of the Trump voters is to not leave those people hanging out there at prey of people who are going to try to take their economic anxiety and turn it in a really ugly direction. Because I don't think there's a mechanism. I, I think that kind of politics is contingent and can go in either direction. Well, the mayors of the cities and towns across this country are going to have to deal with, deal with whatever comes in the most direct way. And it seems, based on my experience, that it's, it's a local, at local politics where rational decision-making eventually seems to take hold because they're so much closer to the, to the challenges that people are facing every day in their lives. I, I think Yes, but for, you know, for instance, one of the, I don't know if they'll do this, but you know, as one of the proposals that the Trump administration is talking about in tax reform is to end the deductibility of state and local taxes. 
and on federal tax reforms, right? And part of that, I think, is a mechanism of enforcing discipline on more progressive cities, saying, or you could feel, however, you could feel whatever you feel in your heart of hearts, but we're going to try to make you govern in an austerity way by making it more expensive for you to to raise taxes locally in order to do whatever you might want to do, whether it's in a housing market or something else. So, you know, I just think we're at a very serious time where part of the agenda of the corporate lobbies is to make it more difficult for for people to vote on progressive policies through referenda, whether that's at the state or local level, and also to make it more difficult for city governments to do anything progressive. That's what they've been doing in the with all kinds of preemption laws at the state legislature. And to the extent that they can do it now, when they have influence over all three, you know, both houses of Congress and the White House, I think we'll try to do that at the federal level as well, not just to push through regressive economic policies, but to try to shrink the scope of democracy and make it harder for progressive things to be done by others. It seems to me that corporate executives have failed to learn the lesson that Adam Smith tried to teach back in 1776. He said, if you look at the countries that are stable and growing, it's, those are countries with high wages. And you know, while an individual corporation might temporarily be more profitable by laying off more people, lowering the wages of its employees, if all companies do that, there's no one to buy the goods, no one to pay the freight, and the economy will, will shrink and they themselves will find that they're going to have a hard time staying in business. I mean, a lot of companies are already finding they can't compete in this world that's moving so much more toward you know, the digital environment. When you can buy your food, you can you know, go on the computer and order your food from Amazon and they'll deliver your dinner that evening what's going to happen to the supermarkets and to the restaurants. It's a, uh, it's a, a real, it's, it's a confusing time, I think, but I, I, I'm afraid the corporations, too many corporate executives haven't figured out that their, their best interest is not in the short run decisions they're making. Well, I think we need to look at the, the structural things that cause them to make those kind of decisions because these are, you know, I think some people, you know, kind of focus on individual corporate executives as if they're just know, morally bad or short-sighted and but you know when part of it is the form of globalization that we have which we talked about before where I think a lot of companies think well what Adam Smith said is less true now because I can get the workers I need from all over the globe by contract you know by digitally contracting with whoever to do different things and I can sell all over the globe so I need some things from America but not that much and the other thing is the financialization of the economy where non-financial, I mean, almost all the Fortune 500 have been reconfigured where their whole operation is about short-term shareholder return. Right. So when you look at those executives and you think, well, why don't you want to invest in the school system or even in highways and bridges? And sometimes they'll say, I agree. If we did that, 20 years from now, our company would be more profitable. But I'm going to be judged on the next two years, and I'm going to be out of here in three years. So it's not that, you know, what is objectively short-sighted may still be rational for them given the constraints that they're actually operating under, which means what we need to do is not kind of appeal to their sense as individuals, but try to change the, the, the contours of those constraints that they're operating under. And obviously that's easier said than done. A lot of that seems to be related to the corporate compensation packages that executives uh, receive. 
you know, in your view, how, how would you think the best way to change those, that compensation structure is to you know, encourage uh, businessmen to think more long-term and to do, do right by their employees as well as themselves and shareholders? I mean, it's probably easy to design a, a compensation package that incentivizes those things uh, rather than what we have now. How to get it done politically is difficult. I mean, I do think that this is one of the things that there is wide bipartisan support for. You know, the to begin with, the ratio of how much a CEO makes to how much the average worker in their company makes is much higher here than it is in any of the countries of the other industrial democracies, which is a sign that like it's not doesn't have to be the way it is here in order for companies to be successful at attracting good executive talent and, and making money. And then in addition, you know, what you said is that the the incentives, the, the additional incentives apart from salary are towards short-term return. But part of that is because a whole series of laws were changed over the last 30 years that made companies constantly afraid of hostile takeovers. And their response to hostile takeovers is to try to put more and more money into, um, into dividends, into share buybacks, into pumping up the price of the stock, which is always short-term. So that if you look at all of all the profit that companies made in the 1970s, 60% of it was retained earnings, meaning it was reinvested either in expansion and new technology and worker training or something. It was reinvested in the operation of the company. Today, that number is 10%. And that's, that's not because it's all going to uh, CEO you know, buyouts or something like that or incentives, but because it's going to shareholders and trying to keep the shareholders happy to avoid hostile takeovers. And that's a terribly destructive thing for the economy, but it's a function of the laws that were passed, a series of laws passed over a few decades. Along with, with that, on the individual side, there's, there's, there's certainly a good deal of criticism on the part of some economists of the, of the differential tax rate between ordinary income and capital gains. Yes. And you know, as someone who has taught economics for many years, one of the things that I, I try to explain to students is, there is no such thing as a capital gain. Real capital goods, buildings, machinery, technologies, never increase in value over time. Uh, if, if they do, it's because they become so old, they become a collectible. But, but that's why we have depreciation. And so does it make any sense, logically, to give tax breaks to people who engage, who experience gains in the sale of, tr of financial uh, instruments? But we haven't. We can't even get that issue on the table for discussion at the legislative level, um, and yet, it, to me, it makes such common sense that that the capital gains tax advantage should be totally eliminated as a starting point. Uh, I agree, and you know, part of part of what I look at in the book is the uh, state budget deficits. You know, at the height of the Great Recession in 2009 and 10, and terrible prices that we paid for those and cuts to you know, eliminating preschool, eliminating kindergarten, eliminating health care, all kinds of things. At the In the year of the worst deficits, which was either 2009 or 10, all, all of the deficits in all 50 states could have been erased if they just did two things. One is do away with the Bush-era tax breaks for people making more than $250,000. And the second is have capital gains tax at the rate of regular income. Right. It's a huge price that we pay for that. But, you know, as you mentioned about the politics, you know, in theory, you could do those things at the state level. 
as well as at the federal level. There's no state, not only no state did it, no state even seriously looked at it. No state, I don't think, had a committee hearing on it even. Well, so it, it is a huge problem even to do something modest and say, we'll have some incentive for if you hold on to it long term, but not speculation, you know, not the quick change, which is what so much of the market is. Even that has not been gotten through. When you, when you, I'm sure you attend annual or regular conferences of other members of your discipline, what is the nature of the discussion on public policy issues at, at those conferences? I mean, uh, as an undergraduate, I learned from, from one of my professors that uh, the way we make decisions in the United States is by, and he used the term, disjointed incrementalism. Uh, are we getting any better? Are we still making our policy decisions based on disjointed incrementalism? Or is are, are political scientists beginning to see that we need some commonly uh, accepted um, you know, systemic changes? Well, you know, I would say things have, have gotten worse, not in the sense of less competent, but I think they are more organized, but they're organized by the big corporate interests. You know, we've had, um, and this is really what my book is about, the 1% solution, is looking at tracking what the big corporate lobbies have been doing in all 50 state legislatures in the years since Citizens United. And you see this tremendous commonality of legislation where the same bill is introduced in state after state after state, and we know where it comes from. They're written by corporate lobbyists. So right. we've had a nationalization of state politics, the idea that states are laboratories of democracy and Iowa will try one thing and Maine will try something different and we'll see which worked and legislators can learn from it. None of that is happening now. Right? And it's certainly not academic political scientists or people in think tanks who are driving this. So we have a you know very well organized, very well funded efforts. At the states, it's mostly coordinated by the American Legislative Exchange Council that is pumping out cookie cutter legislation in all 50 mm. states. Right. Um, that, unfortunately, is how a lot of the most important legislation is now being passed. And because most people are bored by state, you know, by state politics, almost nobody is paying attention, which makes it all the harder to, uh, to have some kind of counteracting political force that would serve the broader public interest. Well, it's interesting. My own, you know, past corporation was probably one of the most political, you know, corporations in the United States. Uh, every every time there was an, a change in administration, we would bring in uh, in our government relations area, you know, Republicans or Democrats to make sure that we were covering both sides of the aisle all the time. And it's yeah. always hard to know. It was hard to know, you know, what legislation should be advanced that was in the public interest uh, versus in just the narrow corporate interest. Even when you know people were were seriously thoughtful about these issues. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know what to say about Alec. The question is, what could be done? You know, what citizen action could be done to bring about changes in the laws that would uh, take the lobbyists out of this equation for how legislation is drafted and implemented? I mean, you know, obviously there's two, there's two different kinds of answer to the question of like, what should you do? One is, what kind of laws and regulations would be good to have? That's actually that's complicated, but it's actually easier, right? And you you probably have a list of things that would be very good to have, and, and so do other people. Then the second question is, 
how could any of that possibly be accomplished given the, you know, given the, the political reality that we're operating in now? And again, I don't have an easy answer to that, but that's the place where I start thinking about organizing around issues because I think, um, I think organizing around parties or individuals is too hard and is not the place where there's enough power. When you think of what might, you know, we're in this situation where the corporate lobbies have unlimited money, almost unlimited money, have tremendous political clout, especially at the state level, but their agenda on an issue by issue basis is largely unpopular. And so the question is like, how can we galvanize people to see that and then to act on that? And I, you know, the most effective thing that I've seen so far is when there is a ballot initiative on a particular issue. Then you can go out and talk to people, whether it's coworkers or neighbors or something, and your conversation is not, let me tell you why the Democrats or the Republicans are so great, but let's talk about why we need small classes in school or why we need to control the price of pharmaceutical products or, you know, whatever the, the particular issue is. It sounds like you would not think that the uh, prospects for third parties in the United States has much of a chance of success. The Greens, for example. No, I don't. I mean, I would like to be wrong, and I know all the arguments about, um, you know, ways to have joint endorsement and, and other forms of voting, which would be great, but it kind of just reproduces the same, you know, you say we need a Green Party or some kind of third party because the current parties are rotten. Okay, how do we get a third party to be viable? Well, we need to change these electoral laws that are dependent on the same rotten people who are in office now. So it's not that I think it would be bad to have a third party or, or to have a different system of voting that made it easier to have more independent parties or coalition governments. Um, I think that would be good. But how to get there, but that's not the answer to how do you get there given where we're starting from, I don't think. Well, I'm gonna take the opportunity to put uh, one of the uh, most outrageous ideas I've ever put before my students in the classroom. And that is, I've, said, I've suggested that we ought to do away with elections altogether for legislators. Why don't we replace campaigns and elections with a system of selecting our legislators by lottery? People, if you're willing to serve the public good, you take a, what amounts to a civil service examination, your name goes in the hat, and if you're chosen, you get to serve in the legislature for one term, and then you go back to your life. No campaigns, no fundraising. I, I, I can't, I've, I've argued, I can't imagine we would have a worse uh, result than what we have today. I don't expect you to respond, only I just tuck that into the back of, uh, you okay. know, the back burner of your thinking. Okay. Um, but it, it generates a lot of discussion because we need some systemic change and campaign finance reform hasn't seemed to done it, do it. Uh, the idea of term limits is, is intensely resisted and is viewed as unconstitutional. Well, uh, we're, we're just about reaching the end of our time together, but let me, let me pose something to you related to Henry George. Uh, he championed a fundamental systemic change by the elimination of rentier privilege, rentier privilege. Uh, when his cause failed to generate sufficient activist support, what emerged was really an organized effort in many countries, not just the United States, to implement this idea of land value taxation and to tax rent-derived income via a progressive income tax. 
we do, we've lost the progressivity of our income tax system. It's been eroded by so many exemptions and loopholes. Uh, and at the local level, where Henry George's ideas have been at least tried, we're dealing with thousands of, of taxing jurisdictions, really bad assessment you know, practices that underassess land extensively. I don't know what we need to do, those of us who embrace Henry George's ideas, to get more of, of his insights into the public discourse. But uh, I, I wonder, how do, we, how do we do a better job of engaging members of academia and getting, uh, the, getting your colleagues, not just in political science or even economics, but history, sociology, to really take a closer look at what Henry George had to offer to us uh, that's still relevant today? Uh, you know, a big question. I, maybe you have, you know, I, maybe you have this. You know, I think sometimes, you know, if, if somebody produced um, a few lessons, I, I kind of mean like a few days worth of classes, saying, okay, you're teaching a class about this subject, you're not going to teach a whole class about the teachings of Henry George, but here's here's some material you can use. Here's three classes worth, mm. right? That explain the material, that prompt certain kinds of debate and certain kinds of questions, and that it's ready-made for faculty to to take up and to insert into classes without it having to be the whole class. I've seen things like that done on other topics, and it seems to me maybe you already have material like this, but this seems to me like a good topic to try to create something that a lot of different academics in different fields with different classes might be able to slot in for a portion of their class. Great advice. Well, let me give you sort of a last word in our, our discussion here. Is there any, any other message that you'd like to, to uh, convey so that the well, viewers of uh, Smart Talk will really get a sense of what you think our priorities ought to be in moving towards systemic change? Uh, I think that um, uh, one is, I, though I think it's a, it's a very daunting time that we're living in, that it's important to not get too depressed, that you know, we're living in, on the one hand, we're living in Trump's America, and, but we're also living in the same country that almost elected Bernie Sanders on an unprecedentedly progressive platform. Uh, and I think that um, I hope people will pay more attention to the states. I understand why it's boring and why people don't pay attention, but it turns out that while everybody's bored to sleep, huge things are being done at the state level. And if you're gonna wake up just for a minute to pay attention to state politics, that minute should be in the fall of 2020, because the people elected in 2020 are gonna redraw the legislative districts and either draw them fairly or continue to gerrymander everything in a way that makes both the state legislatures and the US Congress less democratic than it should be. Well, uh, Professor Lafer, this has been a, a great uh, opportunity to get some of your input, and I appreciate uh, your comments. And perhaps we can do this again sometime after the next book is published. I'd be happy to do that. It was good talking to you, too. Okay. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. 
If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.